again. Acts 19, I'll start in verse 8 and I'll read through verse 20 as we listen to this wonderful story. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, of, of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What a wonderful story in Scripture. A wonderful account of God moving. The Gospel having an effect. God moving in power. Can you imagine God doing that here? Can you picture God moving in power in ways like this here in Haverhill, here in Boston? I can. And I want to learn. I want us to learn from this. I want us to learn about how God works. I want us to be encouraged and instructed. So let's dig in. Let's go through this and learn. Let's talk first. I want to first talk about persuasion. Do you see there in, in verses 8 through 10 how it begins? Paul goes into the synagogue and for three months he speaks boldly. What does he do? What does it say next that he does there? Reasoning, right? Reasoning and persuading them and about the kingdom of God. He's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he's persuading, he's reasoning, and the subject matter is the kingdom of God. Then they, uh, they basically kick him out. He goes to the, the hall of Tyrannus. And, um, and what does he do there? He, 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 continues, he continues in this. He continues reasoning with them as well in the, in the hall of Tyrannus as well. Um, so he, so his, his work of bringing the gospel is through persuasion. It's through reasoning. It's through teaching and discussing and, and addressing issues with them, both in the synagogue and then later in this lecture hall. He does it. 
He does it uh, daily in this lecture hall of Tyrannus, and, and, and most likely in off hours in that culture, this lecture hall would have been used during on hours, so they would have a, a mid-afternoon siesta, and there are some manuscripts that talk about it being done in the middle of the day, which probably were, were added later, but because of that's actually what went on in the middle of the day, they would go and do this. Um, so they would take a siesta in, in warm climates, and that's when Paul would go in at the lunch hour basically, and reason with them in this lecture hall. And it went on for, for two years, and it says the result is that all the residents of Asia, all the residents of Asia, that's about half a million people throughout that region, they all heard the word of the Lord. So he's persuading. He's persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then it says later, the word of the Lord uh, is heard. So you might be wondering, okay, which one was it? Kingdom of God, word of the Lord, and what's the kingdom of God? What's the word of the Lord? What is meant by those things? What's the kingdom of God? Well, uh, that's a good question. And, and I would say that in Acts and in Scripture, these things are actually synonymous. The kingdom of God, teaching about the kingdom of God, and the word of the Lord is syn- synonymous. So let me explain. Uh, let me talk about what that is. Well, well first, the kingdom of God. What, what is a kingdom? It's a place where a king rules, right? It's the place where a king rules. And, and when Scripture talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about the rule or reign of God. Probably a, 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 turn, a way to put it might, that might help you better understand it is we could talk about the kingship of God. Because when we think kingdom, we think automatically, immediately like a place, geographic. But that's really not what it means in Scripture. It can mean that, and that is eventually part of what it means. But it's bigger than that. It means the reign, the place, the, the kingship, the reign of God. So Paul's talking to them about the reign of God. He's talking about how God reigns as king somehow. Well, how does he do it? Well, that's answered when we think about where it says he talked about the word of the Lord. So what is a word? A word is a statement. It's a communication. Uh, it's when you say something, the word of whomever, uh, that, that's what they said. The word of the Lord is what God says. Uh, but there's a, a connotation in Scripture that's a little more than that. It's really saying it's the, it's the ultimate statement that God makes. And if you read the storyline of Scripture, you know that that ultimate statement that God makes is what we call the gospel. And all that word gospel means, uh, it's, you know, it's one of those words that can just sound religious to us just means good news. That's what it means. It's a, it's a good news. It's a, it's a uh, proclamation of good news. It's not just like kind of good news you read in the newspaper. It's like this, a headline good type of good news. It's a declaration, a proclamation of good news. So the word of the Lord is the word about the good news. And what is that good news? It's the news about a king. It's the news that there's a king. And that that king has conquered. That that king has worked a victory is changing and will change the world entirely. And he's worked his victory how? Well, in a very unkinglike way, actually. Usually kings conquer. They come and they subjugate other people. They come in and they, and they, and they kill and they conquer. And that's how they rule. And then, and then they make themselves the ultimate one who's, who dominates all. But this, this king did things an entirely different way. Now, certainly he brings his reign and rule. But this king did it in a totally unking way. He came and he lived a humble life. He came as God in the flesh. And he lived a humble life of loving others and serving others. Of submitting to his parents when he was young. Submitting to authorities. Of, of laying his life down to serve others and thinking of others first. And most of all, loving his heavenly Father the most. 
He obeyed where we all failed. He obeyed perfectly. He obeyed with His heart. He obeyed out of deep love for the Father and deep love for others. He lived a righteous life and then through His life and His ministry, He demonstrated that He was not any ordinary man. He came and He taught the truth of God. He taught Scripture itself. He took the Old Testament. He explained it, but He also clarified and added to it in a way that only God could. He taught like unlike any other. And to this day, people still listen and read His teaching without any interest in believing that He is God the Son and still say, there's, there's no teacher quite like this. But he didn't just teach and demonstrate through his teaching that he was, uh, he was different than any man and perhaps a king. He performed miracles. He healed the sick. He drove out demons. He stilled storms. He raised the dead. He said, guys, I am Lord over creation. I am Lord over sickness and death. I am Lord over the demons. I am unlike anyone else. He demonstrated that through His life, through His miracles. And He could have become a king. They wanted to make Him king. Especially after He fed them. Probably 15,000 or more people, He fed them miraculously from a basket full of bread and a couple of fish. But He didn't want to be king their way. He knew the path to being king was totally different than anything this world would design. And so he marched resolutely, purposefully, to his death in Jerusalem. He knew what was ahead. And he tried to teach his disciples. They didn't quite get it until later. He knew that in order to be king, in order to win subjects to himself truly and eternally, in order to fulfill all the Father had for him to do, in order to please the Father whom he loved supremely, that he had to go to the cross. He had to die on the cross. And, and according to the Old Testament, be cursed on that tree, on that wooden cross, to bear the sins of his people. Because he knew that the subjects that he would have were, were currently subject to sin as their king. And they needed to be rescued and redeemed. Their sins, the penalty, the holy, just, and right penalty for their sins, their rebellion, their, their choices not to love God, not to love others, had a penalty, a just penalty, and had to be paid. And so he went to that cross to offer up that righteous life, that perfect, that glorious, that perfect life that, that, that was worthy of all honor. And he laid it down on that cross and he suffered the holy justice of God for you. For you. That as you turn from your self-determination, turn from sin, turn from thinking you got it down and you can do it on your own and you can handle it, to be desperate and say, I need a different king. I need someone to rescue me. That, that you could be completely forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And the power of sin, the power of darkness, the power of those things inside yourself that constantly want to do the wrong thing could be broken. And you no longer would have to be subject to them as your king, but Jesus instead. He died that death on the cross for your sin to give you life, to offer up His righteous life in your place so that the Father could receive you as if you were as good as His Son. And then make you a full heir and give you the Holy Spirit. You see, on the third day, He rose again from the dead. 
victorious over sin and death and the power of God, and now gives that resurrection life to all those who turn to Him. They experience new life. He comes and He dwells in us. And, he, and he, we experience forgiveness and power and grace and a changed attitude and the power to say no where we didn't have it before and a life that more and more resembles Christ Himself and one day will be fully redeemed to be with Him. That's what it means to have Him as King. That's what it means to live under Him and be under His reign. So when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, those are the sort of things he's talking about. He's talking about how God brings about His reign. He brings about His reign through the Gospel. He brings about His reign through death and resurrection, through the faith of God's people in Him. And then He works that reign by, by making us willing subjects to Him and then, and then using us as His agents in the world to spread the good news that is the power of God to extend the kingdom is the power of God for salvation. And then uses His people to shine the light of who He is and to demonstrate to the world this is what the kingdom of God looks like. People laying their lives down for one another. People caring for the poor. Healing happening, happening at times and ultimately completely when Christ returns. The community of God loving one another. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. So that's what Paul's doing as he's persuading and, and reasoning with them in the, in the synagogue and then in this lecture hall. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. He's speaking about the Word of the Lord. He's speaking about the Gospel and its implications. But he's reasoning with them. He's persuading them. He's declaring these truths, but he's also reasoning. He's helping them understand. To, to reason with somebody means you come and you understand where they are. You understand their perspective. You understand their objections, perhaps, to truth. He comes alongside and He gives them reasons to believe. Christians are to do this. This is important for us as we seek to reach the city that we understand we must reason with people. Tim Keller is a pastor of a church in Manhattan. He planted the church, uh, now was it maybe 15 years ago? 20 and it's been incredibly successful in reaching urban people for the gospel. And one thing that he has talked about is this necessity of addressing objections and reasoning with people. People have what he calls defeater beliefs. And, and all that means is they have objections. They have things that they believe that, that they've been reinforced in their lives and through the media, through the culture and so forth, through experts in the field, they've, they've been reassured that this is a truth. This is an ultimate truth. And everything else has to bow to this truth. And those, those, those truths aren't really truths. They're untrue. But they're objections. There's beliefs that the culture has. So when you come to bring the Gospel to them, they say, uh-uh, it can't be because this is true. And that contradicts this. And so, if we're going to reach people, we need to present Christ. Certainly, we need to present Christ in all His goodness and glory, all His grace, all His majesty. And we need to, uh, Tim Keller talks about this, we need to, to so present Christ in His grace and goodness. And you don't have to be a pastor to do this. You can just simply share your story about what Christ has done for you. That is a compelling story to people. And when we do that, we, and when, when we do it honestly, when we do it uh, according to Scripture, it will have an effect on many people where they might have objections, but they'll say, I wish it could be true. I had a man say that who, I wish I had time to talk to him. He later died. He was, he was dying of cancer. And I shared Christ with him. And that was his response. He said, I wish that could be true. 
and he held on to his, his objections and, and didn't trust Christ from what I know. But as we present Christ, it should have that effect where people would say, I wish that could be true. That means they're ready to hear about how their objection is not valid. We need to address their objections. So Tim Keller talks about this, and, and I think I have a picture of a sandwich to put up, and I'll, you'll know why in a minute. This is the persuasion sandwich, and there are three ways to come, up, uh, to come about persuading somebody about the gospel. And this is from Tim Keller's stuff, slightly adapted. First, the bottom, we present Christ. We, pre- we share our testimony. We present that picture of who Christ is. And, 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 and for many, as we do that, they will, they will be drawn. They will say, I like that. I like this unking, unlike any other king. I like this unking who comes as a servant to rescue us. But then they'll have objections. So the next thing is to begin to address their objections. And people and cultures can have all sorts of objections. There are no one set of objections. As a matter of fact, some cultures can have objections quite opposite other cultures. Keller, uh, again, says that uh, Christianity is disbelieved in one culture for totally opposite reasons. It is disbelieved in another. So, for example, in the West, it is widely assumed that Christianity can't be true because of the cultural belief that there can't be one true religion. You can't have one true religion. In other words, our culture believes that. There isn't one. They're all, they're all wrong, and, and they all have a slice of truth or, or so forth. And, and so when we come and say, this is the only truth, they say, they might like what we say about Jesus, but then, nah, they can't just, it's too exclusive. So in the West, we have that. But then he says, but in the Middle East, people have absolutely no problem with the idea that there is just one true religion. That's not an, a, a, an objection they have. That doesn't seem implausible at all. Rather, There, it is widely assumed that Christianity can't be true because of the cultural belief that American culture, based on Christianity, is unjust and corrupt. They believe that the American culture is Christianity, and that's corrupt. So so I don't believe it. That's their main objection. So we present Christ, the bottom part. We we share our testimony, and then we answer objections. We just ask. We can ask, what do you think about that? And they'll say, I like that. I wish it were true, but... And then share that. So we begin to answer those objections. And, and I want to equip, we want to equip you guys to be able to do that. That, that objection about it, there can't be one true religion could be addressed this way. And, and this, is, this is, by the way, can take months and years, okay? This isn't like a one, one you know, ten-minute conversation. This is, means building a friendship with somebody, presenting your witness, getting to love them. They know you. You go to GAR Park. You build a relationship over the long haul. Okay, this is long term. But at some point, they're going to present their objections. And that objection, how can there be just one true religion, uh, could be answered this way. I would ask them back, um, do you think that religions that all say they're, one, they're, they're the truth can coexist together and all be true? Is that possible? If everybody's claiming they're the truth, can somebody's got to be true, right? Somebody's got to be right. There can't just be one. And then I might say, you're actually making a religious assertion yourself. Your religious assertion is that there's no one true religion. But, and you're insisting that you're right. You're saying there's only one true idea, that the, and that idea is that there's only one, there is no one true religion. So you've been exclusive, actually, and you're saying my idea is the right one, aren't you? Yes, you are. So isn't it the nature of religious things that we're, we're trying to make statements about life and purpose and meaning and truth and right and wrong, right? And isn't that by nature exclusive? In other words, there's going to be true things and there's going to be false things. 
So isn't it kind of, doesn't it not work to, to make that assertion that they're, they all have to be right? No, because you're making an assertion there. You're saying you have to be right and saying that they don't all have to be right, right? Does that make sense? Someone, yeah. So you're just, basically, you're just helping them see it just somebody's got to be right here and you're saying you're the right one, but, but, but you, that doesn't make sense for you to be the right one. So, so there needs to be a truth. And if you happen to have the right answer, would it be morally responsible for you to keep that to yourself? No. And so would you just journey with me to investigate whether Christianity might be the right one? I'm not going to force you to it. But just consider. Because one of them has to be right. We think it's right. We think we have good reason for it to be right. So then you invite them on a journey. That's the top part of the bun. You invite them on a, on a journey, a long-term journey. Okay? That's so important. We can read the Ephesians, uh, Acts 19, and watch this amazing stuff happen in a short term. But you're not the Apostle Paul, and, and I'm not either. And usually it takes months and years for people to consider. The history of the church, actually, uh, when, it's, when it's done this work in cultures that don't know Christ, it's, it's been a normal experience that it just takes a long time. And the, and the church in, in the past would provide a place for, for people to come in. They, uh, um, catechins, I think was the word. I can't remember the word for them. They would come in and they would receive teaching over the long haul. And then over, perhaps over years would eventually come to Christ then be baptized and added to the church. So for us as a church, we're, we're cognizant of that, and so we seek to be a church family. We practice membership. There is a point where you are a member here or not, and, and those are on the journey uh, considering membership. I mean, you might be a believer already. I'm not saying you're not a believer if you're not a member, but, but then there's a group of people that are, they're, we've invited them on the journey, and they're getting to consider these truths. And they're looking at you guys and thinking, that, they seem relatively normal, and they believe this stuff. Maybe it's okay. And they're seeing the love of God among His people. And they're hearing truth that answers the questions of life. And so they process through. And God works. And they come to Christ. So that's the sort of persuasion that we seek to do building off of uh, this idea in Acts 19. Building off of wisdom of guys like Tim Keller. The persuasion sandwich. I just encourage you to, to try that. So that's what Paul did. Paul persuaded. He reasoned. There was tremendous power though. Paul had some advantages. He was an apostle. Um, and he experienced the power of God in an unprecedented level. Now, all the gifts are for today. There are no longer any capital A apostles by nature. Um, they existed then. They had to have seen the risen Christ. But, uh, but the gifts are still for today. There are still healings. There are still people being delivered from demons. And I've seen these things. Perhaps you have. We've had healings in this church, and we want to see more and more. But Paul operated in a level that was just way beyond what we, what we would normally see. Actually, even Acts says God did miracles, not just miracles, but what type of miracles? Extraordinary miracles through Paul. And, and so these, these miracles of the handkerchief touching him and his apron. And by the way, those, those, the, those words for handkerchief and apron are what he would have worn as a tent maker. So it looks like he was working a job, by the way, uh, while he's doing all this which is amazing. So he's working a job in his, his work apron, his work uh, cloth on his head. He would have someone bring it to someone and then be healed. That was extraordinary. That's not normal, okay? So when you see the guy on TV saying, buy the handkerchief, don't believe him, okay? It's not normal. It's extraordinary. Hey, it, it might be of God, but, but, uh, but this was extraordinary, what went on with Paul. It was unusual. 
There was power. And so God used these miracles to really prove and validate what Paul was seeking to persuade them on. And that's the second part of bringing the Gospel to the city. is proving. Proving that this is true. Demonstrating. Validating it. Now, in Acts 19, it, it is proven in some really incredible ways. People are healed by these handkerchiefs and the apron just touching them. Diseases leave them. Evil spirits come out. And, and this is actually akin to miracles from the Apostle Peter early on in the, in the book of Acts. Just amazing things going on. Uh, and, and then there's this story about uh, these seven sons of Siva, the high priests. And so these guys are Jewish exorcists. We don't know the whole story, what they're doing, but they're, they probably have a good business because they're in Ephesus. It's a big city, and there's a lot of occult stuff and probably a lot of people who are demonized. So these guys have a good business going. Uh, I don't know what they do and how successful they are, but they, they see Paul doing some serious business and driving demons out, delivering people from the occult and oppression. So they decide to latch on. And they think it must be you know, the right words. That's actually a cult often is about you know, incantations and saying certain words and there being power in words. And, and it looks like in the culture of Ephesus, that was a big thing. The people would wear incantations on them to drive off evil spirits. So certain wording of things. So, so these guys think, okay, I got the right incantation. I heard, I heard Paul talk about it. I, saw, I heard Paul deliver. So, so they, they seek to drive out demons in the name of Paul and in the name of Christ actually. Uh, I adjure you by G- the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, they say. Isn't that interesting? Um, and then what happens? Jesus, I know, the demon says. I've heard of Paul. Who are you? And these, these demonized men um, give these guys a beatdown that's so serious. Everyone hears about it. The whole city hears about what happens. And, and they're horrified. This, I mean, it, it's horrifying. We, we look at it and we kind of laugh. Uh-huh, you guys tried this and you got it. No, this was horrifying. This was demonic assault went on and everyone heard the story in the city. And then there, there was a result of that was that people stopped playing games spiritually. They stopped playing games. They knew this was serious business. The name of Jesus was revered. It says that the Christians actually came out. They had been practicing occult stuff even while professing Christ. And they realized through what happened that this is serious stuff and I'm not going to mess with it. And they contributed uh, their stuff to the, a fire and it was uh, roughly $5 million worth of occult books that they gave. And they, they were sobered by it. It had a great effect, and, and, and let me just say, by the way, um, Jesus doesn't want to be a pocket deity for you. He doesn't want to be something else you got in your pocket, and the other pocket you got whatever else. You got astrology, you got, you got something else you're leaning on, you got whatever makes you feel good. He doesn't want that. And this should be sobering for us. He sees what's done in private. And He wants to be your all in all. He's... He's holy. And He knows what you're doing. And I just encourage you to to come out with it. Have someone pray with you. Confess what you got going on. Burn it in the fire. And put your faith in Him. He will satisfy you far more than anything else will. 
And he will not put up with being a pocket deity like he was. And he came in power, and thank God these people responded. And they burned their stuff, and the word of the Lord went forth in power. It says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It changed things. It changed this whole area. It had a huge effect. Now, I, I pray and I, we want to act and ask God to work in power. We want to ask God to come and deliver people from demons and we want to see people healed. But this is in some ways an unusual occurrence. It's not common. Now, I, I could tell you stories about where it's going on in the world and so I, I don't want you to think that it never happens. It does. I, I know men who are ministering in India. We have a group of sister churches within Sovereign Grace Ministries, a whole, uh, I, I think... I forget how many churches. It's maybe a thousand. It's a large amount of churches being planted in northwestern India, and they'll go into these villages and they'll preach Christ and they'll minister to people, and people will get healed. And then the the, the proof of the gospel comes in that healing. And then they start a church there. That's how the churches there get started. They start churches in these villages, and people are coming to Christ. It's wonderful. So this stuff goes on. We want to pray. We want to act. But the more common way that God proves the validity of the gospel is over the long haul to the lives of His people. So if you look at the history of Christianity, there are certainly moments where there are miracles and things like this that happen. But more commonly, it's just through the witness of God's people. It's, they prove the validity of the gospel through their lifestyle. They prove the validity of the gospel by doing things like feeding the homeless on every Wednesday and opening their lives to those who have needs through adopting children, adopting foster children, through loving their city and investing themselves in the city rather than just treating it as a bedroom community. Those are the sort of things that God uses more commonly to demonstrate the validity of the Gospel. And that's historically what's gone on. I told you last week about uh, in Alexandria when the plague came and how the Christians stayed in the city and took care of the sick. They didn't flee. Everyone else did. And, and they took care of their own, and some of them died. But, but when, the, when the rest of the city came back and they saw that these guys, these Christians had stayed and loved one another and had loved the sick who were not Christians, it had an impact and changed that city. The history of the early church is full of this. In the city of Rome, um, Rome Roman culture, I mean, there are some noble things in, in Roman culture, and, I, and I, you know, I'm a fan of the classics and everything, but, but it was a brutal culture. It was an immoral culture. It was grossly immoral. And, and one of the practices that, that they did as a culture was uh, abandonment of babies. They did what modern equivalent of abortion. They didn't have the medical procedures we have, so they did it a different way. They would bring the child to full term, and then they would just leave it out on the street or on a hillside. This was so common that, that uh, and it was usually girls over boys. Historically, when that stuff happens, that people prefer girls over boys because uh, they think the boy can carry on, take care of us in, in old age and so forth. And it was so common that, that uh, upper-class Roman families would have usually have no more than one daughter. They might have four or five sons and one daughter. That's because they had abandoned all their baby daughters. They just left them outside. They would sometimes kill them or just leave them. Leave them outside for someone to pick up or for animals to ravage. It was awful. It was brutal. And you can read the documents. You'll see that when Christians came to these cities and the city within the city started to grow, they, made, they did something distinctly different. They did not do this themselves, but then they also went out and they gathered these children and brought them into their homes. They made them their own. 
They adopted them. They made, brought them up in Christ. They made a counterstatement to the culture that was significant and powerful. And I could tell you story after story of things they did like that. Their whole ethic of how families operated, how men loved their wives. In that culture, men, men did, did not love their wives. They were brutal. They had mistresses. The Christians came in and they were called to lay down their lives for their, for their wives and their family. And they lived this counterculture. And it had an impact. It had an impact and it took a while, but it did have an impact. It changed the Roman world. Within 300 years, half the Roman world professed Christ. And if you understand how raw and how brutal that, that culture was, you'll understand how unprecedented it, it was. Now, I could tell you other stories. I could tell you stories about more modern stories. I could tell you about England. Uh, uh, England, you, you guys know about the French Revolution. There was revolution in that time period. The, the poor people, the working class, rose up because they were abused. And they overthrew the rich people. That never happened in England. Not because England didn't have poor people. Matter of fact, England probably had more poor people in some ways than other places. They had more unjust laws uh, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution than other places did. But they had something that was real different. The gospel. The gospel came in and it's made such an impact among the poor and in the cities that it tempered their, their inclination to murderously rise up over society. And they never did. And that's you know, there are historians will look and say that that's the difference in England. It was the city within the city that transformed that culture, that transformed those cities. I could talk about Chicago as well. Uh, you can look at the history of Chicago and see the same sort of thing. You can look at other places, even New York City, and see the history of God's people in the city proving the gospel is valid by their lifestyle, by their choices, by how they live, by their ethics, how they spend their money, how they relate to each other, how they relate to their family, how they relate to the poor and the lost, how they relate to the issues of the city. That's how you prove it. And I'm so glad that we as a church are learning about this and learning to do it. That's God's call to us. To persuade and to prove, and then the result is an impact. If the band could come up as we close. The impact in Ephesus was tremendous. Uh, the, 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 the money given to the burning of the scrolls, the scrolls that were given, the, the amount of money, it's about $5 million. And, and, and I think I've shared this before. I, I did some calculations. $5 million worth of books are burned. How many people does it take to get $5 million worth of books? Anywhere from ten to 100,000 people. Unless somebody had a million-dollar collection they all donated, right? Your average person maybe had, you know, I don't know, $500 worth of books, all right? of occult books, just to guess. Books were more expensive back then. Uh, so that would mean, that would mean roughly 50,000 people. So the amount of people who came to get rid of their books and burn their books was significant. The, the impact of the persuasion and the proof was perhaps as high as half of the population in that area, equivalent to the size of New England, being reached for Christ. Churches being planted. You read the book of Revelation, all those churches in those different cities were, were probably planted out of Ephesus as people came to Christ. Men like Epaphras, who, who I think it was Epaphras, Erastus, I can't remember his name, went to Colossae and planted a church there. Those churches were planted. That region was changed by this. Can you imagine God doing that here in Haverhill? Can you imagine... 20% of Haverhill coming to Christ. 12,000 people in Haverhill. How many churches would we need for 12,000 people 
How many services would this church have to have to fit a thousand people or more? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, imagine just this region being affected? Can you imagine things being shifted, economy being shifted by the Gospel turning things upside down? Guys, this is what we're called to. We're called to bring the Gospel. We're called to persuade. We're called to reason. We're called to ourselves first be persuaded. And I hope you are. And then to persuade others and to present Christ and to answer objections, to journey with people and to, to prove through over the course of time. Now, it, it will probably take months and years for most people. But to prove to them this truth and to see this happen and to see this sort of transformation, to see this sort of impact. This is what we're called to. Now, you might be thinking, you know, I don't know if we can do that. Well, I can't guarantee you can do it, but I can say, and I can call you to something, to die trying. That's what we're called to. To die trying to be the sort of people who live by the Gospel. Let it affect our lives. Seek to persuade others. By grace, prove it. And to watch an impact happen. And I trust in God's grace we will see it. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you feel the call of God in this to learn from Paul and to walk in the same things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You. We thank You for this wonderful example in Ephesus. And I pray, Lord God, You would stir Your people in faith this morning. Lord, we can't do it. And if we read the story of Paul, there were cities he went to where things did not go too well. But then we see this in Acts 19. And Lord, we, we want to see You make Your name great. We want to see You rescue people. We want to see You work. And I pray You'd give us faith to believe You for it. And to take some small step to grow, to become like the church in Ephesus. And God, that You would do above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine, we pray in Christ's name.